Today, I get to talk to one of my idols. This woman made my favorite cartoons happen. Without her, the shows that we all love wouldn't exist. I'm talking to the one and only Andrea Romano. It's so nice to speak with you today. Thank you so much for having me, and thanks for all those kind words. Very nice of you to say that. So, for people who don't know who you are, you actually are a voice director. How would you define that job? It's interesting, because aside from being a voice director, I'm also a casting director, and that is very common. A lot of us voice directors also cast for ourselves. But my job as a voice director specifically is because we are at the beginning of the whole animation process, unless we're dubbing, if we're doing original records, that is the template. That is what the animators will use to make the cartoons with. So my job is to supply the animators, and that term animators encompasses a tremendous number of people. That includes character designers, storyboard artists, in-betweeners, layout people, timers, all kinds of people who take care of the animation. So my job is to supply for them a vocal track that they can then animate to. And it's not just a vocal track, it has to be the vocal track. The track that is right for that series, for that project, that has the right energy, that has the right style of, of voicing, meaning is it very broad and cartoony like a SpongeBob, or is it more action-oriented like a Batman? And that is essentially my job. My job is to supply the animators with a vocal track that they can then go forward and make a cartoon from. Wow, that's a lot more work than I thought it was. <laughs> But how did you become interested in working in voice acting? It came as a complete surprise to me. I, I knew when I was very, very young that I wanted to be somehow involved in the entertainment industry. I did not know in what capacity. I didn't know what field it would be in specifically other than the entertainment industry. And I wanted to work with actors. And I started studying in undergraduate school as an actress. And I went to a very good college, the State University of New York at Fredonia. Fredonia is 60 miles southwest of Buffalo. It's a terrific New York State school that had a really wonderful program in that, as a theater student, you uh, say you were an acting major or a set design major or a lighting design major, you still had to take classes in every other aspect of that field. So say you were studying acting, you still had to take makeup classes and costume classes and all the other uh, fields that support making a play, creating a play. And what I loved about that was the fact that I got a really good overview of what theater, what, what goes into making a play. And then I went to New York City for a little while and tried to make a living there. And it was just too competitive and too hard and too cold and just <laughs> hard. And so I moved to the West Coast, down to San Diego for a very short period of time, and then came up to Los Angeles by a friend, Anthony Barneo, who was a college roommate at Fredonia. And he asked me to come up to LA to temp for a couple of weeks for a voiceover agent's assistant who had been in a car accident. And so just, you know, as a fluke, freak kind of thing, I went to LA from San Diego. And that two-week job ended up being more like two years when the uh, person who I was temping for decided not to come back. And then I discovered this whole world of voiceover that I had known nothing about. 
on the East Coast. There was very little done on the East Coast as far as any voiceover. There was almost no animation voiceover done on the East Coast and a little bit of commercial work done there. But most of it was done in Los Angeles. So I discovered this wonderful field of voiceover and I was hooked right from then from being an agent's assistant. I got hooked on voiceover. The actors that I met were so cool and so talented and so versatile. And my experience was that voiceover actors, people who predominantly do voiceover acting, they may also do some on-camera work, but predominantly voiceover acting, they're less neurotic than on-camera actors. <laughs> they're less egotistical. They're more generous. It's the only time I've ever really seen in general where someone will say when they come in for an audition, you know, thank you for the audition and I'm happy to do it and here's my audition, but Dee Baker is actually better at this than I am. Or you should see John DiMaggio on this. He's really good at that impression. And that doesn't happen a lot, I don't think, in the on-camera side of the business. Most people are very protective of every audition, of every gig. And so I kind of that's when I fell in love with voiceover. And kind of a very quick run through my career, I was there at uh, Abram Zubloff, was the name of the agency, a very large talent agency for a couple years. And then I went over to Special Artists, which is what we call a boutique talent agency, a much smaller agency, where I started their voiceover department. They had no voice department. They were strictly a commercial on-camera department. And then after being there for about a year and a half, Ginny McSwain, the casting director at Hanna-Barbera, contacted me. And ultimately, I became the casting director at Hanna-Barbera and then started directing at Disney uh, TV animation for DuckTales, which just celebrated its 30th anniversary, and um, which is just insane that that was 30 years ago. And there's a new DuckTales out, by the way, that's wonderful, and I had nothing to do with it, and I think it's just charming and wonderful. And then I've been casting and directing animation voices since, uh, as a freelance uh, person, since 1989. Oh my God, so you've I been doing it as long, long as I've been alive. <laughs> Yeah, those those weird realizations happen. I, I just spent some time with my the woman who's been my personal assistant for years and my, was my personal friend first, and then we realized that we've known each other for over 40 years, which is just, to speak in terms of that many decades, is just weird. I don't feel that old, but... <laughs> Suddenly, those kinds of things make you realize, oh, you know, that little baby that I held in my arms, they just graduated high school. I mean, they just graduated college or whatever. It's just that strange realization where you just, time goes by. Time goes by. Yeah, it really does. Since you mentioned all some of the shows you worked on, my personal favorites were like Animaniacs, Pink in the Brain, Static Shock, DC Universe, and Avatar The Last Airbender. Do you have any stories from working on those that you're willing to share? I have so many stories, and I actually am writing my memoirs now. About 20 years ago, I started making notes of wonderful things that would happen during a day. People I would meet or direct or wonderful stories I'd hear or something that happened in a recording session, and I would come home and just make a quick notation that would remind me of the story so that I'd be able to retell that story years later. And um, I, I never was sure that I would write my memoirs or any kind of book like that, but now that I'm retired and I'm only just retired, I spend, I don't know, a couple hours a week filling out some of those stories so that I don't forget them. And, and the truth of it is, I've, I've got a huge book happening because I've been working for a long time and I've met so many people and I've, I've had all these wonderful experiences. And I made the mistake many, many years ago of not 
taking photographs with all these wonderful people that I worked with and not getting their autographs, which, you know, everybody kind of thinks, gosh, it's kind of geeky to get an autograph, but I, I now regret so much that I didn't get an autograph from Elizabeth Montgomery, you know, Samantha mm-hmm. from Bewitched, or these kinds of people that I met and worked with that were so wonderful and so kind and so such an honor to actually even be in the same room with, no less actually directing them. The shows that you mentioned specifically are all shows that I was very fond of myself. Animaniacs will always, always have a very special place in my heart. And and all of the shows that you mentioned, too, were not easy shows to make. Not, you know, I can't... There's not one series that I can say that I worked on that was just a breeze from start to finish. It all requires a tremendous amount of work. The trick is in making it look like it was really easy. I'm of the mind, Isis, that if we work really, really hard and it's stressful and it, we strain to get the line right and, and everything is really, really hard, that that somehow transmits into the cartoon and, and the audience kind of can feel that. Just like as we first began this interview when you asked me about what my job was, supplying a good vocal track for producers and directors, animation directors and animators. If it, it's a struggle, they're going to have a struggle with the animation and then it's going to come across that way. But if we if we work really hard, but we do it in kind of a, a joyous environment, then the the hard work is is pleasurable hard work. And I think that that's I think everybody can kind of relate to that. Yeah, that was really hard, but gosh, that was fun, and and that's what it needed to be. And so Animaniacs was like that. Animaniacs required a tremendous amount of casting. It was a huge cast, and I cast that as well as directed it. And and it was a beautiful show. Gosh, I loved working on that. Uh, Pinky and the Brain, the spinoff for that was equally as much of a pleasure. Avatar The Last Airbender and the sequel to that, The Legend of Korra, were such wonderful series. And why they were different is they were epic in their stories. The producers whom I adored knew exactly what they wanted to do from episode one through episode 60. And then for the second season, episode one through episode 60, they knew exactly what they wanted to do and they knew exactly where the peak of the whole series would be and where it would go. And I said to them when we wrapped um, that series, I said to the entire cast and the crew as I was working on it, that I was as proud of working on that series as anything I've ever done in my career. And that still holds. That is such wonderful storytelling, such beautiful animation. And I'll tell you, I was not a fan fan of anime-style animation when I was a kid growing up. Mm-hmm. It wasn't my favorite. I kind of liked the Hanna-Barbera cartoons and the Warner Brother classics. But Avatar The Last Airbender completely changed my mind about that style of animation. I just fell in love with it. And I, I loved the storytelling and the, the actors that... I did not cast that series. And the casting director did a beautiful job with that cast. And that was a real problem at the beginning because, you know, the Screen Actors Guild, which is the union we work under, it's now Mm -hmm. SAG-AFTRA, but the Screen Actors Guild wants us to hire the ethnic background, hire a performer of the ethnic background that the character is depicted. Meaning if the character is Asian, we should be using an Asian actor. And I 100% agree with that. If the character is depicted as Hispanic, we should be using a Hispanic actor. And that's only fair and diversity and correct. However, everyone's in a while you run across a case where you can not cast it with and you've done a major search and you just can't find anybody within that ethnic group that can do the performance that you need and so you have to go beyond it so what happened with avatar and again i wasn't casting it but the casting director told me told me the story of the first actor they had hired who was so cute and so adorable as ang was just 
too young sounding. He sounded like a baby. And that was just too young sounding for the character. Once they did an animatic and showed what the animation looked like with that voice, clearly the voice was too young, but it was adorable. And he was a young Asian actor. Then we found another actor who I believe was half, half Asian and half Italian was his ethnic background, and he lived in New York. So I used to fly to New York every couple of weeks and record a couple of episodes. And that, for several reasons, just wasn't working. Part of it was financial, part of it was, it just wasn't coming together right. And then we finally found this third kid who I don't think had any Asian ethnicity at all, but he was so good. And ultimately, you know, once you've done a, a proper search, and we spent a lot of money trying to work that through with Asian actors, and we just couldn't make it happen, then the Screen Actors Guild gives you their blessing and says, go ahead, continue with your production, and thank you for at least trying to make that work. And so that was a real trial on that, but I loved working on Avatar. Static Shock was really interesting for me because the late, great Dwayne McDuffie was such a smart man and such a, a wonderful writer and I loved working on a series that was part action part comedy it had to do with kind of younger cast members younger superheroes kind of superheroes who don't know they're going to be superheroes you know yeah. th that kind of the, the superheroism is thrust upon them and how they react it's already tough enough to be a teenager but to be a teenager who suddenly discover they've got powers that's wonderful that was a joy to work on that series and then in my career i've had the, the joy of working on so many different types of shows the boondocks i mean couldn't be a more different show than say the smurfs <laughs> Very and yet true. i had the great joy of working on both those series some of the last series that i worked on just before i retired were puss in boots which was an absolute joy and a beautiful cartoon and there are still episodes yet to be dropped on netflix that'll be coming out and i'm incredibly proud of those voltron which is a wonderful series i got to work with a lot of my friends that uh, i knew from from the avatar days as a matter of fact a lot of the uh, producers on that show worked on avatar as well and a sweet sweet series called nico and the sword of light which was based on a ipad app and amazon picked it up as a series and that it's just a sweet show, and that's available on Amazon. The first season of that is available, and the second season should drop sometime in the next year. And so, and each and every one of them, it's kind of like, you know, when people say, what's your favorite show that you ever worked on? It's like, well, what's your favorite child? You can't say because you love them all. And even the really, really tough series, I loved them. I loved every job I ever had. And I just have to comment on Stack Shock. Like, I know Dwayne's widow, Charlotte Fullerton. I love her to uh -huh. death. And I caught... Most recently, when they re-aired a few episodes, specifically the Christmas episode, where they'd focused on the idea of homelessness and teen homelessness. That episode still brings me to tears, and it makes me wonder why we aren't doing shows like that now, when kids really need that. I agree. I agree. I, 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 and thank you for reminding me about that episode, because that's really, that is special. And, you know, of course, we all start getting kind of mushy around the holidays, and that is as it should be. And practically every series tries to do some kind of holiday special, whether it's Christmas or Hanukkah or Kwanzaa or whatever it is. And I remember there's a wonderful uh, Pinky in the Brain Christmas special that I hope people can find and watch. It's just a 22-minute special, and it was absolutely magnificent. It makes me cry every time I watch it. But you're right about why there aren't more socially conscious cartoons being made, and I think that people get too wrapped up in entertainment, and it should be only entertainment, and, and I think there is that there's a, uh, that fine line that you have to walk where you don't get too preachy, but you do either teach a lesson, and you know, there was a, a, an expression that was used in the last, I don't know, decade or two, where it was called edutainment. Mm-hmm. 
you know, referring to. And, and that kind of turned a lot of people off because they were like, oh, gosh, I have to learn and blah, blah, blah. But of course, you think of things like Sesame Street, and those were absolutely entertaining learning shows and still are. And there's no reason why teaching kids and people, uh, adults as well, uh, about anything can't be done in an entertaining way that's poignant, that really speaks to what the planet is going through. And, you know, they tried to make a series called Captain Planet, which was meant to be a series about saving our planet, which we all need to be very, very concerned about. And I don't know why every single series in production doesn't do an episode about, my Lord, we have to pay attention and save our planet because our kids are going to have nothing if we don't. And homelessness and poverty and hunger and all the the problems. And tolerance. There need to be episodes of every series made about tolerance. People are so intolerant of other people's ideas. And I think the more we can, in an entertaining way, right from the get, with little tiny kids teach tolerance I think that's key and there's a, a project that I want to mention if you'll allow me to use of your course, podcast for of this course. it's a project that I had absolutely nothing to do with other than being an enormous fan and it's called Classical Baby and I believe it was made by HBO and it's very very simple animation extremely simple animation and it's a little tiny sort of it's not even a toddler yet baby and the baby sort of crawls over to a podium and grabs a conductor's baton and cues up an orchestra made of animals and they almost look like paper cutout animals but they move a little bit and he little baby in this baby voice it must have been one of the producers or or somebody on the project's own child because this must have taken hours to get recorded this tiny tiny baby voice will say something like um the name of the piece of music or you know nocturne or whatever see nocturne Mm -hmm. um and then this beautiful cartoon comes out and again the cartoons are different in style but they're all very very simple simple animation cartoons and it may be a, a mama frog teaching her baby frog to jump off the lily pad and not be afraid and this beautiful classic music playing in the background and then when that little four minute cartoon finishes and the the baby and the mama frog hop out of the frame of a famous painting. And so children, children, children who watch this are being exposed to classical music and classic paintings. And then, you know, the name of the piece of music and the name of the painting will be on the bottom of the screen. And to me, this is stunning. This is absolutely wonderful. And they made several of them over the years. Some of them are about art. Some of them are about dance. There's one about poetry that is absolutely wonderful. And so I'm not even sure if they're still making them or not, but I just wanted to put that out there because that's one of my personal favorite cartoons that I had nothing to do with other than being a fan. No, I love that because I work in arts education. So I was actively in school seeing how children were reacting to arts being taught in their faces, all sorts of it, dance, theater, even mine, which was really fun. Oh, how wonderful. That must have been great for you to see their reaction. I loved it more than anything in the world. And I'm very sad that, that, unfortunately, that job ended and I'm, you know, looking for something new. But my goal is to try oh, and stay in education and arts and try and pull entertainment back into that someday. That's wonderful. Thank you for having done that. And thank you for having that inspiration to do that because kids... Lives will be different if they are exposed to the arts, and that's music and art and theater and all the arts. At an early age, it will impact their lives forever. And I fear that there's so much technology being presented to children that they're forgetting some of those things, some of those art-focused 
things that just allow them to look at beautiful art and appreciate beautiful art and 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 shocking art and and discordant music and you know things that aren't necessarily beautiful but there's a reason for them and and to be exposed to them to be able to say I like this I don't like this I like this I don't like this and that's a, a wonderful thing so thank you for having had a career or a job in that field and I hope you get to continue in that Thank you. And on actually that note, because I would love to follow in your footsteps, do you have any suggestions for someone who wants to be like you when they grow up? <laughs> um, first of all, watch as many cartoons as you can. And, and I'm, I'm not saying that in any kind of joking, joking way. I mean that in that my job often was to come in and help create a, a different kind of cartoon. You know, come, let's make this. Nobody's ever made anything like Teen Titans before. And they were absolutely right. There was nothing on the air like Teen Titans. So I had to look at everything that was on the air to see what we needed to do to make it different. And also that tells you what's selling and what people are liking and what they respond to. And so uh, watch a lot of cartoons. Take acting classes yourself. If you expect to be a director, you have to understand the viewpoint of an actor. You have to understand their sensitivity. You have to understand what they go through every day in order to create a character. You have to understand acting terminology so that you can say to an actor, let's talk about your pre-life in this scene or let's talk about the subtext in this scene and you need to know what those things are so that you can discuss them with the actor. Mm -hmm. And then I would say, and this is what I did, when I, because I, as I told you earlier, I, I, I kind of stumbled into this business. I didn't have this desire right from the very beginning to be in animation work or voice work at all. And um, I took a voiceover class. When I first started being an agent's assistant, when I first had that temporary job, I thought, you know what, let me find out what these actors are doing. And so I took a voiceover class. And that's what I would suggest to take a voiceover class, even go so far as putting together a demo of your own, because that really gets you in the the boots of an actor's experience. You get to see exactly what it's like to walk in their shoes. And then what I did was, as many of us do, we start working at talent agencies, then we start casting, and then we start directing. That is a very common progression for people who become voice directors. Every once in a while, somebody's just in the right place at the right time. And a lot of animation producers are directing for them themselves right now, directing for their own series. That's fine. That's their prerogative. They can do that. I think it takes far longer when producers, unless they're really, really savvy and know what the heck they're doing, and they don't always have the actor's terminology, and they they stumble through it. They, they finally, you know, typically get it. I think voice directors are key. And the most important thing, I think, in my job was creating an environment where actors felt safe to create with me. And so I would I would come to a recording session completely prepared, very, very prepared. And then make sure that the actors felt comfortable and they had all the materials they needed as far in advance as I could get it for them so that they could be there and play. And that's always what I would say is, you want to come play? Let's play. Let's do this. Come on, it'll be fun. And we all would have fun together, no matter how serious the cartoon was. We would all have fun making the cartoons. And I think that's probably the most important part of a voice director's job is making sure that they create an environment where everybody in it feels comfortable and everybody in it feels creative. Oh, that is fantastic advice. Thank you so much, Andrea. My pleasure.